This episode of the Brewers Perspective podcast is presented by HPA. HPA's team of experts in breeding, growing, harvesting, and processing hops is dedicated to delivering impact in your beer year after year. Hi, I'm Marcus Cox, and I'm joined by my colleague Anthony Clem for the last episode of Brewers Perspective for 2021. As it's the last episode, we thought we'd have a look back at the keep issues we noticed in 2021 and get out the crystal ball to see what was developing for 2022. For this episode, we're joined by Brewer, ostensibly, Justin Fox. Justin would be no stranger to most listeners. He has a long career as a brewer, working at the Monk in Fremantle as a technical brewer for Lion and head brewer for the Colonial Group. He has consulted and developed award-winning recipes for businesses such as Hawks Brewing and most recently worked as head of sales products and development for Bintani Australia. Recently, he went out on his own, working as a brewer consultant under the business name The Grain Keeper. Justin, welcome to Brewer's Perspective. G'day, Marcus and Anthony. Thanks for having us uh, on board. Excellent. So a very general question to start with. How's brewing in 2021 look for you? Uh, look, I'm, I'm a Victorian, so p- potentially a little bit more restrained than, uh, than some people around the rest of the country. It, it's just been a, been a whirlwind, uh, obviously. But I think it's been a really successful year for, for definitely for, for local breweries down here, which has been a real um, eye-opening sort of change to the industry. It's, there's been a lot of uh, drive of the change of focus of businesses to be, to be a hyper-local model. And um, wherever there was always a bit of a hesitancy or worry with, with the lockdowns and people losing that ability to have their tap room income, most of the businesses that we've seen have really uh, thrived and, and managed to negotiate and navigate around that. And um, look, everyone's looking at a really, really promising position leading into next year, I think. So you guys had, what was it, more than six months probably about of lockdowns. And, and some of that was just you couldn't go any further than 5Ks, right? Yeah, look, there was probably three to four months of the, of the 5k rule 260 odd days i think we got to so we we're approaching the nine month mark of of some form of restrictions and no hospitality opening so could you move in that time so like yeah if you if you found you weren't living in a location that had enough breweries in it to sell your house <laughs> and move somewhere else yeah Gee, that's visionary <laughs> you couldn't virtual auction how are you going to sell your house well i mean that's i guess that's how some of them Stayed alive, wasn't it? Like they did the free delivery within 5K radius and all of that. I mean, it's pretty ingenious. Yeah, definitely a lot of that using bartenders. And, you know, you had a a group of people working for you that you needed to retool and retask. Um, And the local community really got around that. And that happened across a heap of industries, whether it was butchers and bakers and, and other local businesses. But it forced you to look it within your 5Ks and see what was there. And I think that's um, a blessing for the for the micro sort of brew pub model. We're starting to see now a few a few breweries, micro breweries, go into liquidation. But on the whole, it's been pretty everybody solid. survived. It's pretty solid. Looked at it as a purchasing window, maybe to put some money down and have some equipment on the way, knowing it had come out on the right side a bit later on. Yeah. So the guys that focus purely on just having a brew pub and had no retail model. I mean, I guess they probably got hit a bit harder than the guys that had pack lines and could do takeaways and things like that. But, I mean, what did you see, Foxy? Like, did, did the guys that had pack lines, they really thrive? The guys that had, you know, that got shut down, they, they would have struggled, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. The the active, crafty sort of can model and, and the, um, the mobile canning businesses are, are pretty um, prevalent down here. So, so they got smashed. Most of the businesses were able to adapt and push a lot more trade into cans than they, they probably would have otherwise, even those utilizing those services. So that was another positive. Yeah, absolutely. So that, those those guys that, uh, what, three or four guys that are doing that down there? Yeah, that's probably right. And I think there's more entering the market. It really is a valid uh, model for some of the new breweries looking to open up uh, are very much looking to adopt those guys' services for the first couple of years. So they'll have an allocated space for a can, but it, it makes sense for them while they're concentrating on building a tap room and refining their beers and actually getting their beers to the quality they want to um, push out further into trade in small pack, that they're 
utilizing those guys as just part of their business model and, and it works for them. So I don't think they're going anywhere. If you went back, um, I think someone floated the model over in WA back in, in the early sort of 2010, 2011 mark, and uh, it really didn't feel like it would be be worth it um, driving around and trying to set up all that equipment in, in 100 different breweries uh, every you know couple of times a week. But it's it's worked. They're they're really good at what they do. Um, they've they've made the equipment. Obviously, the, the canning equipment now is a lot more mobile and a and a small footprint. So it's uh, it works all across Melbourne, and it's it's definitely saved a lot of businesses. I'm sure those guys have put out um, and run those machines harder than they would have ever thought. Um, stepping back a year and a half. Do you think um, just to try and tie back to a couple of our previous episodes that maybe some breweries. Uh, out of that necessity got pushed to market a little bit too quickly with with small pack and, and there were some quality challenges definitely i think there's still a lot of quality issues in small pack um referring back to your first sort of chat that you guys had on um that that's probably one of my worries leading into 2022 now is that the the rate of uh breweries and businesses opening is starting to outgrow the the labor force that we have yeah. and the and the education and training that that labor force has um sort of hearing that back from a few people over in wa and and in other states as well that it's just you know through through the history of time if you there wasn't really much formal education but there was a, a degree of spend two three four years in a in a brewery maybe another couple of years in another brewery and you were ready to tackle the the head head role now there seems to be a lot of people moving into those head roles and starting their own businesses with maybe sort of in the 12 to 24 months experience. Um, and there's probably still a few <laughs> learning opportunities there that, um, you know, there's just more experience that they need because there's more mistakes that they haven't quite seen yet. It was a very different time, but flashing back to when I was 24 months into the industry, it was pretty pretty rough. I was yeah, I think lucky, was... To, lucky to drag my ass through that one. That was pretty rough. I reckon Some... it was probably 10 years before I ever... Got the head brewer title. Yeah, you get the basic idea at five and you pull it off at ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Whereas, whereas now, uh, just through sheer necessity uh, and the amount of breweries that are popping up, um, the titles titles there for guys that haven't been around for very long and uh, uh, are trying, trying to do the best they can with what they know. And if you are strapped and need to go out into into retail, it can be can be a pretty foggy world foggy liquid <laughs> very foggy liquid accidental challenges i'm trying to get chungus out of the way sooner rather than later as well so you had to get in there one of our kind of in-house jokes has been the you know not just particulate but when it when it conglomerates into form actual chunks uh like an asian drink with the coconut solids inside um you know trying to pass that off as beer and is that acceptable that was kind of we had a an episode on product recall and then that was a back note to that you know putting the disclaimers on the cans which i hadn't seen before about you know there's going to be an inch of crap in the bottom of the can is is that how we roll now oh look it's um again i'm the same as you guys there it's changed um far too quickly uh for me to come on board with it i think when it would have been two to three years ago. There was a, a real um, sort of piss take attitude video done by the uh, the ARBA judging, where we knew there was a couple of hazy beers poke around, and everyone held them up and tried to pretend they were orange juice and stuff. And if you went back there, it was really being approached as a gimmick that was coming in, and, and it probably had a year to a year to live. But um, we've clearly all been proven wrong, and, yep. and the palates of everyone have uh, have taken it on board. And I think, but the beers have refined as well. I don't think. Hopefully we never get there with an inch of solids in the bottom of a can, but I think the quality, the basic quality of these beers has improved dramatically that if you drink them fresh and and drink them close to the source, there, there are fantastic examples of, of what that style has become out there in, in the market. It was nice to put a couple of caveats on there as well in terms of defining the product close and fresh. So that's, yeah. Product definition is really the key sometimes. You get that same thing judging, don't you? Like it's entered as an experimental beer and it's um, this is a is a English uh, IPA except it's using more Australian hops and it's not quite as bitter as an IPA and we also uh, put raspberries in it. It's like, well, okay, that's that's you've just told us the style and you've told us all the three reasons it's not the style. So, Well, style guidelines are always trying to catch up so they just might be ahead of the curve. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> What is ahead of the curve? 
What's next? Well, look, I, I think that that um, education piece and that shortage of brewers is one of the biggest challenges of, of 22. Um, seeing the the people, and, and it, it may be exacerbated by the excise relief is obviously, it's a blessing to a lot of businesses, but what it's also going to do is it's going to encourage that person with 12 to 24 months experience or less to to look at the numbers and think, look, there's there's an opportunity here to, to start a business and it's, it might be a little bit easier operating at that small end of the scale than it was was a year and a half, two years ago um, from a financial point of view and especially a cash flow point of view. Yeah. I mean, with, that, with it being treated as a, as a tax-free um, component, not necessarily even a rebate that you've got to front up and find the money first. So, look, that's it's just going to create a a new explosion of breweries at the bottom end and that'll be the biggest challenge for the industry to to make sure that the beer coming out from those people is um is of a standard that that upholds the reputation we've all been building for you know 25 plus years now you're since- pulling faces anthony you go. oh mate it, i couldn't agree with couldn't agree with you more mate it is a, a, a real concern because i mean we live in a bit of a i guess insular insular world where we think craft beer is everything um, when really it's only a small percentage of what's out there but uh, in order for it to be in order for it to have some longevity I, I want I want it you know, I want to be able to go to the the retail the retailer and buy a can of beer or a bottle of beer and you know have it be drinkable and yeah some of the stuff that is coming out is a bit of a concern and it's not they're people trying to do the right thing. It's just they don't have the experience to be able to put it all together, um, and especially in the early stages of of uh, the brewing process, where they're just kicking things off and trying to get to understand their equipment uh, and start up a business. And yeah, you know, there's so many variables that they have to contend with. Um, you know, producing great beer becomes just another variable and if you haven't got the experience like Foxy says we just um you know there's not enough brewers around i mean even the the big guys are having the same problem because that's where they're, they're, they're coming from like i just yeah. spoke to someone uh the other the other day and like they're struggling internally as well so it's a problem the whole industry's got to face how do we how do we get around it i mean the tafe course is is a good little starter but from my point of view, the TAFE course is fantastic. Um, I find myself struggling to invest time training people from, from zero in-house. The, the resources required to get somebody up to a one out of ten level where they know the fundamentals and can perform some of the basics. I just don't, We don't have the, the resources to do that in-house. So knowing somebody turns up with that kind of license, the, the L plates, is super helpful. Yeah, so the, the guys that have got those... Uh, breweries that have done well, they've put all the time and effort into their people and grown their grown their businesses. Now the those people that have spent a bit of time and have got a bit of experience are now branching out to other smaller breweries, and um, so they're losing all their staff. It's yep. it, yeah, I I think it is going to be a twenty twenty two issue, um, education and how we how we bring them all up to speed and you know, produce some great beers because. Uh, I mean the the margins are, are there, and that's why everyone wants to jump into it. But if we're sending the wrong message and everyone gets a bad beer out of this, then you know we, those margins are going to get eaten away as well. I mean, potentially there's the opportunity with the borders open internationally to go back to bringing people from overseas in in various capacities. Um, yeah, that that's might a good lighten the load a little bit. Yeah, that, look, the the problem does extend to the big guys as well, Anthony. I think you nailed it there. Even even big craft like. Um, some of the the Asahi and uh, and um, Lion companies, um, you know, their craft breweries that they've purchased over the time, um, people working in those spaces have been have had a great education. They've done their two to three years, and they're the ones jumping out, and they're needing to sort of bring bring their workforce up. But the other point around it is is it's going to cause a secondary issue. Well, that'll be one of the biggest challenges of the year. Um, I think what will inevitably happen is a bit of bad beer in trade um, and what what some bad beer in trade is going to do is 
because of the excise relief and the blessing that it was to all of us, I'm not I'm denying the hard work of, of many, many people over the last 10 years to get that um, t- to assist small businesses. But it'll mean you can operate without actually ever paying tax and, and new people coming into the market um, will have a, a very different idea of the value of beer and if they've produced uh, beer of subpar quality, um, then we're going to see the prices drop and the and the expectations of publicans and consumers who haven't necessarily understood why that beer is a bit cheaper than the other beer. Um, how come I can buy a carton of this this stuff for only 50 bucks a slab um, when you're trying to charge me a higher portion? So a lot of the existing businesses have obviously already got well up, up into the, over that 300,000 litre mark. They will be paying tax and it's a, it's a part of life. It's a part of their model. Um, they'll be able to use that excise relief to reinvest and help them grow and, and all the things that it was um, intended for. But you'll be able to come in at the other end of that scale as a small business, not pay tax and and really have cheaper subpar beer out, out in market potentially. So it's a real risk. Do the consumers know though? Have we educated beer drinkers across Australia enough to know that this is good beer or this is subpar? That's hard to tell. I mean, if we haven't educated the brewers, there's obviously a knock-on effect from that. People like new and exciting things, and if it's cost-effective and they get burnt or might actually like it, you know, this could just be an evolution where a whole bunch of unique beer styles develop that are 10-minute shelf life type things. Probably not. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's going to... Yeah. These are the things that level themselves out, out over time and hopefully it's, it's six months, 12 months to level out and not three, four, five years where it really distorts the, the rest of the market and, and the rest of output. I mean, if consumers are knowledgeable about, you know, what good quality beer is, I mean, I'm, I mean, everyone's got a sort of taste perception, I suppose, of what they think is good and what's not. But are the guys that are just producing subpar beer going to just quietly go out of business or... If they've got all their marketing's good enough, then they're fine. It's going to take a while. It'll be the it'll be the people who decide that. Yep. It, it, look, marketing will play a big part of it. Always said that you can have a a fair beer with great marketing and do well, um, but a great beer with fair marketing um, might not do as well. And it, that's just a horrible nature of what we've sort of created, especially with this hyper turnover of different styles and attract attention and brand new and. Uh, marketing still does play a pretty big part in how successfully you get those beers turned over and out to market. That's a nice segue there to roll on to, obviously we've touched on Hazy's continuing strength through 2021, but looking to 2022, what's next in the in the canon to be shot off into space in terms of beer styles? Look, I mean, you, you hope it's moving into a, into a yeast focus. I think uh, the success Future Mountain did... Um, did amazing uh, at the Indies uh, just like just this week. Yeah, Wildflower did really well again. Dollar Bill's success at the AIBAs. You'd like to think that yeast is gonna gonna stand up, and the access to that market is is only going to um, or the, the ability of some of those small businesses really playing and experimenting with yeast influenced beers. You know the the online shops our um, ability to ship anything across the country now because we're not allowed to drive more than five kilometers um that really hopefully has helped burgeon a a new world of yeast driven beers hops have still got another big year in them you talked uh on hops already in this podcast around um it might actually be some more innovation in hops that are starting to to drive 2022 and and really playing with oils and hop extracts and and the interaction of different oils to not, let's just not throw more at it. Let's be smarter at what we're throwing at it to achieve, you know, more consistency in those flavour profiles. And- the hops are getting more and more expensive. So in terms of cost effectiveness, that just drives good business as well. So you're not exactly. contracting for thousands of kilograms, you're contracting for a couple of thousand. So you have to try and get maximum value out of that. And you don't know what's going to be happening next week. So you don't, you know, I was joking earlier, but you don't want to end up with a mountain of hops that you can't use. Yeah, and that's a reality of going out and, and contracting, seeing a beer take, that you, you get those nerves kick in. You're like, this beer's going really well and I need hop security and going out and contracting a heap of stuff and then yeah. the market changes on you. But one of the trends we saw um, with Bintani in, in some of the bigger customers doing hop selections was actually a, a shift towards looking at flavours rather than varietals. So I think that's been 
driven for the last sort of two to three years that you're, you're not necessarily out to get X ton of, of a particular variety. You're really chasing a grapefruit note and you know there's three or four hops that you can get that from in any yeah. given year. Yeah. Um, or you're looking for pine, you know, you need a certain amount of pine in two different beers that you use that in. Um, and then looking at the different tools that you've got to bring pine in, depending on how the crop went, how the harvest went, what's expensive, what's not, and, and the like. Well, the hop suppliers went out and put blends together, didn't they? As well, there was, I noticed there was a couple of blended hops out there where they were just chasing tropical. I mean, jump on the tropical ale bandwagon and here's a hop that's a blend of. Yeah, that can benefit both both parties obviously the the hop growers can run stuff through a gc and piece together little components that they might have to create that that profile but as a as a brewer as well if you're if you're operating in the 10 hectolitre to sort of 15 hectolitre you're a small brewery opening three different hops to create that base profile is not going to do much for your freshness of stock levels in the fridge and and the like i mean and it's it's not it's not a new thing you look back to to seven c's and some of the 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 big blended hops falconer's flight that that kicked off you know they just they give you a great broad spectrum and then you can still accentuate and play on on what you want after that but it's it's covered off that basis it's giving you the spectrum of tropical flavors that you do need to use three or four hops with so look i think they're here to stay i think i think enlightenment with the extracts and stuff anywhere you can get a a more balanced and more consistent hop presence is is going to be a focus point for brewers in 22 anything you can do to reduce the amount of dry hopping that i'm seeing lately is probably going to be positive as well i imagine actually end up with some beer as well as hops and true just yeah the, the yields must be terrible for some yeah, of these guys we just talked about yield yeah. didn't we better uh, yeah, some of these guys are throwing hops at at beers that uh, i just could never ever fathom at what point does it go does the efficiency just level out no, if you're making a German IPA, it's it's going to be a lot of hops. It's true. That's Six, a th- that's a thing. That's real. Sixteen to twenty grams a liter. Oh, wow, it's a lot. Um, mate, we've got we've got some big big guys down here in Victoria. We got um, Deeds and Mr. Banks, and there's uh yeah, there's definitely um, hop hop uh, merchants delight some of those trends going on for sure. So that kind of rolls on pretty well to freight costs. I guess both for equipment and for materials. How do you think you know, there's obviously that extra money to play with that can help to absorb some of that, but is beer going to get more expensive? You said maybe it'll be distorted the other way because of the the, the tax threshold, but everything just costs more, uh, you know, more, more propensity maybe to buy local stuff, but then it's not necessarily that local and not that available. What's, what's going to be the leveling out there? That's a, that's a tough one. It's, Something that's grown all through 21, it just hit new new levels of shocking and outrageous sort of weekly to every fortnight month was just another new ridiculous in terms of some of the costs of freight and some of the delays and the, and the issues. Um, and I've seen that sort of further now, you know, with equipment, ridiculous numbers up around $20,000 Australian for a 40-foot container. I mean... Yep. We're starting to exceed the cost of the stainless steel that's that's within the, the container. True, yeah. It is. Yeah. It's super. It's true. I've actually experienced it where someone's just get. Oh, I need to drop the number of containers. I'll have to get stuff another time. Wow. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a significant percentage of the overall cost of your investment. Is that because the equipment's gone and got too cheap, or? Oh well, when it's coming out of when it's coming out of China, it's still. The price hasn't changed that much. It's the freight cost, like where it used to be two grand or three grand a container. It's now almost ten times that. Yeah, yeah, and that's happening. That's not just stuff out of China. That that's everywhere. You know, twenty twenty thousand dollars on a container with twenty thousand dollars worth of um of stainless steel in it is one thing, but when you're talking dollar a kilo malt, um, those costs <laughs> start to get pretty significant on that specialty malt side. I mean, malt's the the hardest. Uh, thing to export in in terms of you know weight and density and, and the amount of space it takes up so i i really think that will drive a, a little bit more attention to another one of your comments marcus in the early ones is that you try and use some some local base malt i think um that there should be more 
attraction to brewers to to look at silos and look at local base malts and try and create the majority percentage of their grists. Um, but there, there'll be a, a an increased cost from the specialties that are inevitably part of, of some good recipe building sometimes, you know, bringing in those specialised um, uh, crystal malts and caramel malts and stuff like that, that that everyone's been using sort of from the beginning. Although you also do see that the the general colour of beers, I think, has been on a on a hiding to super pale as as the spectrum. So no another, bitterness and super pale is the trend. Yeah, look, we saw that in another AIBAs probably two years ago. The you know one of the my things I love to do at those final trophies is take a take a bit of a, a photo of the final um, trophy round, and you look back through the ages, and it's four or five years ago there was reds and browns and all sorts of stuff in there, and then we got to a year would have been 2019 when the the first seven or eight beers were almost identical by sight. Um, so we've gone through through some mid-strength lagers, some pales, some European lagers, et cetera, et cetera, but they really all just sat on that pale straw sort of golden spectrum. So we've really dropped a lot of diversity in the presentation side of, um, of what we're looking for in a glass. You know, when, when you started at Three Ravens, if you lined the 10 beers up <laughs> in glasses, you'd have, uh, you'd have looked from afar and been able to name every beer. You'd have just said, yeah. that's that, that's that, that's that from across the room. Um, and a lot of brewers now, if you, you know, um, go sit out in their tap rooms, you, you can probably um, barely tell, the, tell what everyone's drinking. That's the trend towards lager as well. And I guess there's a realisation that we're a country of essentially lager drinkers especially out this way and so if you've got a if you've got a viable craft brewery and you want to have an impact and you want to be people's local you've got to have a lager you don't necessarily have to have a filter though apparently no you don't need a filter you just need to call it a lager but i mean they are much lighter you're using less specialty hops i think you're going to see a trend towards just using Australian base malts anyway because the cost disparity is yeah. enormous. Like the freight costs that you, once you, like Foxy said, you add freight costs to your specialty malt, which is already expensive. You're buying small quantities, so then per unit it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if, you, if you're not considering using Australian base malt, then you know, there's some significant cost associated with the COGS uh, with all your beer recipes. So I'm hoping that you know, we see, we support Australian malt a lot more in the next, the next few years. And there's, I mean, I know there's a, there's a maltings just starting up in Queensland. I mean, the, obviously the yields are going to be lower, but you know, it's a specialty. They're going to, they're basically going to look at base malt to begin with. So that's where the, that's where they expect to get some sales rather than going out to, Trying to compete with Wyman and the big boys does that you know. does that defeat the purpose to, to some extent? You know, it's paying three bucks for base malt just because it's local. So I'm assuming it won't be parity pricing with a big producer. Then they've just you know compromised efficiency for whatever reason, climate or it's gonna it's still gonna be expensive. Oh yeah, it is going to be a little bit more expensive, but you know, I still think the disparity is there. So. Um, my thinking is go local. I mean, I don't know. I don't have... So you get savings off freight, I guess. Obviously, you get... I don't know, just, it's always a weird balance. Yeah, I mean, it does cost a lot for, for moving stuff around our big country as well. So the more local you can be, the better, but still. The, the driving determinant on those will be... It probably won't be cost because if we look at the cogs of a beer and, and raw materials... Yeah. Um, you can even support two dollar at the at the prices we're seeing. You know, yep. cans and and some kegs go for now. And like you said, the amount of hops you take ten percent of those hops out, you could use two dollar a kilo base malt without hesitation. Um, so I think it'll be driven from the sustainability um, and the story point of view, and indeed some of the the securities of supply chain that you don't have to rely on um, bulk bags of of malt coming from across the world and getting trans shipped three times and those kind of things when, you know, you've got the malts down the road and, and good Australian barley. So it'll be, incidentally though, it's, it's, 
malt is probably the best carbon footprint of all of the imports that we do because of um, the locality of some of the malting plants to the um, to the rivers and the ocean ports themselves. So ocean freight is actually the best sort of the lowest carbon footprint out of all of the the options we do and you know compared to putting hops on a plane right on the end of the season you know because you're desperate to get the new varietal out here right after harvest um the carbon footprint of, of malt is actually really low so it'll be those sustainability and and connection to local market stories and and supply chain i think that drive where people go with malt maybe more than than purely cost and those those kind of stories are going to play a bigger part in 2022 you think as long as there's authenticity in them that's it who knows how i mean it's do you guys think it's a noisy market now in terms of you know when I mean, it's getting there shop. but once something you know has the option of third party certification then it starts to become more real and that's that's certainly what we're seeing more and more of now it's probably both there's a lot of noise but it certainly has has value i think authenticity if you if you can't back up what you're saying Consumers are starting to talk with their feet now. Now there is much more of a focus on sustainability. I hear it all the time. Yeah. So if your marketing is amazing, that's one thing. Uh, but if you can't back up your marketing, then people are starting to see through that. I hope they're starting to see through it because authenticity to me is what is what um, brings trust in the market. And if you Telling fibs, then yeah, I'd love people to walk with their feet. Is that happening? I don't know. It's a producer jumping in here. The journalist yeah. producer jumping in here You can't, you can't here stop now. yourself, can you? <laughs> like, well, can't stop yourself. A, a, again, like it's one of the, the, the frustrating things is that you, as, as a journalist watching these things un, unfold, there is such a market self-interest to saying how awesome these things are and it's in the the brewer's interest to support the people who are saying that it's awesome and no one saying the emperor's not wearing any new clothes that you know consumers had, had what is the trust source that consumers have for what is good and bad you know how, how do consumers who most of whom are very casual um you know casually involved in the, the, the industry what point of source, you know, source point do they have for, you know, quality and data about what what, what is good in, and isn't in an industry that is very self interested in promoting itself? It's a little riding on the can. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that that that's me done. I'll just sort of uh, throw that grenade in the room and close yeah. the door. Uh, that's a good point. Like, how do you how do you figure out who's authentic and who's not? Until you get right into the detail of who's involved in the business, it's a tough one. Every brewery will use their story to um, promote themselves and their own authenticity. Um, you know, like you referenced before, again, people throwing Tetra in now and claiming that why they do it, and they've turned it into this great story of of enhancing foam retention with this. Yeah, so yeah, pasteurization is going down uh, the same path. Yeah, Light stable kettle extract. <laughs> Centrifuge, all the, all the big ticket items, yeah. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, we, we I saw that in the five years I did with Mintani, really saw that change. That's been a gradual step for the last five years. People finally being happy to use a fining agent, um, okay to use an enzyme, finding <laughs> people using beta-glucanase as a, as a standard when they're using a lot of rye or they're using a lot of oats. They're like, okay, I can... I'm going to use this beta-glucanase stuff that, that every big brewery has been 4 ppm in every single beer they've ever made since time began. So you're seeing them being able to tell the story that they want to tell, um, how the consumer can navigate that. How can any of us navigate it? It's the natural confectionery co-lollies. You know, it's the, it's, it is marketing to a point. It's a nice so, counterpoint. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in every part of what we do as consumers is that we – we jump on certain words and certain things. I've, there's a brewery claiming some great energy efficiency out there because they they cool their wort using cold water and that water is heated and recovered for <laughs> the subsequent hot brew. Genius. And they're, they're, they're pushing that story out there as a great sustainability energy efficiency. So you can sell anything. You can sell ice to an Eskimo if you give the right people the motivation to do it. 
how do consumers tell the story? Hopefully, it's just with good beer. Like, I think generally being naively optimistic. Oh, I hope not. And that's the polite phrasing. I hope not. I mean, yeah, I mean the beers that are consistently being sold in the marketplace. Yeah, there's a portion of marketing going towards that that are that are helping helping them sell their beer, but they're consistently good beers that are the same each time. And I mean, we're not we're not seeing that in the craft industry that much. There's two sort of classes of business that will emerge. There's the the brewery that has to be repeatable and has to produce good beer because they're they're cans sold nationally and and they need to sell beer in environments where you, you haven't touched the you haven't had a touch point with the community. You might not have had a chance to go to Canberra and sit at the Ben Spoke Brew Pub, but you'll happily know when you see Crankshaft on the shelf that you jump on that. That's a great beer, and it's going to be exactly what you were chasing at the time. Um, you know, every time it's going to deliver. If you're in the local area, then you're jumping on the culture and the thing. It's like, what is craft? Is craft the the type of beer, or is it the fact that it's enjoyed in a brew pub with friends and it's changing and it's moving you get back to that debate that really hasn't been settled in since you know since it began in in the late 90s of what is actually craft beer and what are we all here trying to do we're just trying to put good beer in people's hands and um give them a a moment of enjoyment really now that comes from a beer that's not quite of the same quality if the person's in the tap room and they like it and they enjoy talking to the person and the kids are playing happily they'll they'll come back in time and time again and um because it's giving them more than than just the beer i think i'm curiously philosophical on you now yeah, well, no, I, was, I was thinking it was curiously positive it was a, almost a, a nice outro <laughs> so the the guys that are making consistently good quality beer uh they're in the last little while, have been consumed by the by the big guys, haven't they? I and mean, we've seen it again with Stone and Wood. These are some broad claims you're making, sir. Oh, they they are the the guys that are making consistently good quality beer that are sitting, you know, that are getting good distribution around Australia. They're getting bought by the by the big guys. They've got 99 percent of their job done. They just need to get it into more mouths. So who's who's next? Does that go in 22? I mean, not not who is in names of who do you think is actually going? But is there still more room for that in in the next year or two? I think if you can build a brand that everyone can trust and you're getting good, consistent quality beer, then you'd be you'd be a target. You, th- you think it's at the point where people are building brands from day zero, thinking they'll be able to sell them in the future? No, I still don't. I don't think they're ch- trying to because there's a point where my belief is is the big conglomerates have a a strong desire to have a an offering and an appearance of range within what they're doing. Um, I was pretty excited back in the day when I worked for Lion that um, that was when all the little creatures stuff went through and for what it meant for Perth and drinking in taps then is you could go to a Lion venue that had signed all their taps away, but you could get a, a Squires and a, there would be a malt shovel and a white rabbit tap and you're like, look, I could happily just have a few beers here all afternoon. It really brought the diversity into their offering. Now, if you look at them, a Lion pub could really have the appearance to some consumers who aren't connected with with that ownership model of a really good craft bar and definitely an Asahi one as well. Yeah. So do they need more to, re- to, to, to do that or are they just chasing more sales and, and holding on to that market share? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a stack in the... In the stables at both on both ends there, so they probably should. You know, there maybe their next plan would be to work on how do they get more market share with the current labels. I would have thought. Yeah, that's that's where I reckon it's at. They, and they're they're definitely doing that. I mean, you've only got to see some of the expansion work going into Four Pines and and some of those breweries to see that they're, they're going to broaden the access of those and um, they're investing heavily and in making sure they've got the those big brewery tools to put out quality beer time and time again. So I personally have a lot of faith in those beers when I see them on on the shelf that I know what I'm going to get. And They're going to be a good price. Yeah. Good quality, yeah. good price. Yep. When you get such variability in the other stuff, it's hard not to go there sometimes. I've done it. In desperate situation, always go for Coopers. 
What about the other kind of peripheral stuff? The low alcohol, no alcohol, seltzer kind of stuff, you know, pulling that in under the similar kind of manufacturing, but different. It's got a lot of legs in the last six months. It really has. Um, the, the seltzer thing was interesting with the timing around the first lockdowns that we all, all went through sort of March, 2020, when everyone just suddenly had some time as a brewer, you, you know, MPD is something that's often done on the morning on the drive in, um, and we all suddenly had time to sit back and go, oh, well, there's this seltzer thing booming. Maybe I'll, you know, the brewery's shut for four weeks. I'll work on a seltzer. And again, I think it was something that came to market far too quickly as a result. It's starting to tidy up now. It, it really hasn't had a, a proper summer. You, you might know a little bit more. Maybe you have had a, a bit of a better run at the, the right drinking weather for a seltzer up there. Um this summer will be interesting. That'll probably be the make or break moment when consumers decide what they're doing with those. With those, um, but low and no, um, look, that's got a lot, so much work to do. Uh, we've touched on product recalls and putting bad beer in trade. That's a real risk for our industry in terms of not necessarily having the tools to to do it correctly. You know, to to do no alcohol without pasteurization is a very very risky. Uh, business plan yeah there's a lot can go wrong not only um with with secondary fermentations but even the fact that you don't have that protection against bacteria i mean brewing's pretty uh we're pretty lucky that we have an alcoholic based product that really can't make anyone drastically ill it can you know it can taste sour and the, the product can go bad but we can't necessarily hurt people with it um and it does open a whole raft of other um possibilities for putting poor product in trade that can actually have an impact on people, whether it's exploding cans or, or bacterias. So look, there's a, there's a lot of work still to be done there. There's some great examples in trade. Um, I'm enjoying a few. I've engaged with it. Um, father of three kids, you know, there's, there's a lot of driving, there's a lot of moving around. And I think the beers are finally at the point now in no alcohols when people have managed to get around that wordiness that, exists in classic European no alcohols. Yeah. That used to be the problem, wasn't it? It just tasted like, like wort. Yeah, just dead calories from sweetness as well, yeah. just a so weird balance. I, I think they've done exceptionally well to get where they have been. Might even improve uh, the rest of the business to have a bit more stability in, you know, if you have to get a pasteuriser, because I think that's the only way you can do no alcohol, in my opinion. Small scale, you could get away with sterile filtration. Yeah. It's you still eliminate risky. 90% of the risk, which is more than none. Yeah, but even so, sterile filtration, that's another way of just improving stability in your own in your other beers as well. Um, you've got some, yeah, lo and behold, there might be some poor hygiene practice elsewhere. I mean, helping in any way improve stability is going to improve consistency. I think it's only a step in the right direction. And to keep people thinking about beer rather than something else non-alcoholic is a good that's a good place to be i think well it's a much it's a much better option i mean we're we've adjusted pretty quickly to the concept i think as a as a drinking culture of a country um i can recall those moments of driving when you'd have a couple of bogues lights and then you'd end up having a couple of cokes out at a bar i'd much rather now drink a couple of a nice um non-alcoholic beer out in a venue if I'm if I'm driving then resort to soft drink as a personal preference so I think you're right I think grabbing those drinkers who have decided not to have alcohol and keeping them within our sector and, and our market is a fantastic opportunity for us all um, and the pasteurizers will will get there there's a number of options in development I know Cody have got something for their can line now so it, it'll it'll be accessible like all of these things. The first year is really tough and then years two, three and four, suddenly it makes sense for a small brewery to invest in that equipment. So hopefully that's a that's something that rubs off exactly like you said, Anthony, back the other way and we get um, people able to pasteurise their, their lagers, um, you know, just a, a nice touch of, you know, 14, 15 PUs. Yeah, reduce it as much as possible but still do it so that you reduce your... Um your risk. Yep. 
or a risk for risk for for reward on what it is if you you might only turn it turn it on for the stuff you're exporting you know that you're sending back across the nullarbor to wa or something you might choose not to pasteurize any of the the stock you're keeping on hand in your own tap room and you've got cold chain control it's just about pasteurized by the time you get across <laughs> nullarbor yeah. anyway isn't it yeah pretty pretty much especially if the train derails like it does every third week <laughs> I mean, there's something probably you and I, Foxy, and to you, Marcus, as well. The brew pub model's probably, I think it's having a pretty significant effect on the hoteliers and it's disrupting that sort of that sort of model to some extent. You're creating these little communities where people would rather go to the go to your a microbrewery or a brew bar versus somewhere that's got stacks of pokies. Well, that's, that's probably a little bit state-specific as well. Like, Victoria's very different playing field to Queensland. Yeah, true. I mean, how do you see it down there, Foxy? Like, um, is the brew bar model where, you know, now they've got 350 grand in their back pocket, uh, they can really focus on just selling beer across their own bars. Um, one, it, I mean, I know a lot, of, a lot of the guys are going, oh, well, I need variety because I don't want them to go anywhere. So we need a low alcohol, we need a seltzer, we need something for, you know, we need a few different varieties just to keep all the different types of people uh, that want to come here. So it's creating some good innovation and, you know, hopefully disrupting a little bit of the hotel trade to some extent. But now that they're getting the extra cash, you know, it's, they're popping up everywhere. So I was thinking of opening a bar and now there's an incentive to be a brewery bar, so I'm moving to that model. Yeah, and the artisan licenses is, is sort of helping with that whole um, local, you know, stay local and you know support local. So uh, it's an interesting trend. I think it's gonna it's got a couple more. It's got a few more years in it. How do the hoteliers uh, respond to that? Other than put a bar a brewery in their own venue, that's happening too. I mean, Foxy, you probably. See it. You've got uh, guys now that they'll put fermenters in their own in their own hotel. Really, I'm not sure it's the the best way forward, but it's a way of getting around. You know, well, taking a piece of that 350 grand excise rebate. I'm not sure that's really the idea behind the 350 grand excise rebate. Uh, I thought it was more to to help those craft brewers out, similarly to the wineries in the you know, what it did for the wineries. But, um, you know, there are ways around it. Are you seeing more of that down, down there as well? Yeah, one of the interesting parts of that rebate is it's what it brings in. Again, I think we're looping back to where we chatted at the start that it's, it is seen now by others, you know, a brewer who sees it as an opportunity to finally know they can buy a lab in the first year, mm. they can have a DO meter from the start. Um, they should be able to put a centrifuge in in their second year, even if they're only going to be a 300 and 400,000 litre brewery, that still might actually work and they can turn over their tanks faster and all those things. is It's seen by the finance guys who helped finance the last brewery as, hey, there's some real good, easy money in that model. So... It's just, it's just, where where does the money end up? Is the is one of the biggest uh, challenges that we'll see. Does it does it end up in brewers' wages because there's a brewer shortage? That'd be great. Um, does it end up in um, on purchasing equipment and labs and quality? Does it end up on training? Do more brewers get likely to be their, their bosses pay them to to study an IBD course on the side? We all know it's all going yeah. to marketing. So just. Pockets or does it go back to the publican? The beer prices come down, and yep. the, the publicans don't bring schooner prices down at the uh, at the pump. And um, you know, does it all end up going that way? So look, probably everyone wins. They'll, they'll, hopefully, there's a, there's a little bit of grab for everyone. Um, more towards the reinvestment and, and the quality and the growth would be would be great. I'm sure, there's a lot of brewers out there who wouldn't mind you know five or ten percent overnight as as a recognition of that. Um, one of the other interesting parts that already seeing is, is the contract model as well. So if, you're, if you've started a brand and your strategy was to only contract that brand, 
um, the the drive for you to get your own premise now is is a lot lot more because you're not going to realize that same cost benefit for you that 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 break hasn't existed unless you've got a really really strong contract partner who you can negotiate a bit of a sharesy with. Um, it does seem from what what I've seen so far that it's um, you know the business is is utilizing that break, not necessarily the people they're brewing for. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of passionate craft brewers out there and you know, there's always going to be a percentage that do something a little bit odd to cash in, but there's a lot of passionate guys that are making great beer out there that are going to reinvest in the in the industry and I look forward to to seeing what those guys do. Yeah, that's that's the positive out of it. Like how many people grew up in a country town who now go, you know what? It's time. I'm moving back home. I'm taking the family. The city's lost its charm. I'm going to open a little brewery. I'm going to look after locals. Everyone will get around me, and and it'll be a great little business. Well, then that's that's fantastic. That's where if 22 sees more of that, then it's only going to be a nicer trip around Australia one day when you get in the van and do it. You're going to have a brewery in every town to stop and say good day at. Yeah, and a little community that's associated with that as well. I think I like it. Bit altruistic. A little bit. <laughs> Love it. That's probably uh, that's, that's probably, probably it. Sure. Yep. Thanks, Justin, for being the, the voice of reason in the conversation today. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for having us, guys. Look forward Mate. to seeing you more in 2022. Anthony, thank you. Matt, thanks for chiming uh, in. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, a no, couple of keynotes. And, and we are looking forward to uh, hopefully chatting with you more uh, in 2022. Justin, one of the things that we can predict uh, will hopefully happen more. Beautiful. No, that's great. Uh, look forward to it. Hopefully one in person somewhere with a cold one in hand. <laughs> yes. It definitely needs to be done. You can download a full transcript of this conversation with links to other information in the show notes to this episode. Brewery Pro content is presented by Brews News and is designed for the brewing industry professional. If you have any suggestions for topics that we can cover, email us at cheers at brewsnews.com.au. Thank you for listening.